Well, it's communion Sunday, and I thought this would be a particularly advantageous passage to talk about during communion time. But the other reason that I landed in Matthew 18 is because, like you, I watch the news. How many of you watch the news? How many of you watch too much news? Yes, some confessors out there. We watch too much news. And and so we've watched all the rhetoric and all the dialogue and all the anger and all the expression and all the conviction and all of the division that the media brings to us. And there's a word that seems to be oddly estranged from or missing from all the dialogue that we see, oddly missing from all of the programs we watch. Now, I will tell you this, that the word is not absent altogether. This word I'm going to tell you in a few minutes that you could probably already guess. It's not absent altogether. It's just that the media won't tell you about it because it doesn't sell. This word does not create drama that sells. And so much of what we see is media-driven. Matter of fact, I printed out an article from the Chicago Tribune just before I came down. This is March 2018. The title of this article, written by an assistant professor of psychology at Yale and an expert on the neuroscience of human morality and decision-making, the title of the article is Modern Outrage is Making It Harder to Better Society. The subtitle says, Upset About Something? It's easy to sound off on Facebook or Twitter, but social media may be shaping our moral emotions in ways that could ultimately make it harder for us to change society for the better. And the article goes on to discuss the damaging challenges of social media and online outrage and such things as that, which I'm not going to get into today. But what we recognize is that we live in a culture of outrage. We live in a culture of offense, Everybody's offended. Have you noticed that? Or am I just the one that notices this? Or do you notice this too? Everybody, we're walking on eggshells. Everybody is being offended. Now, the funny thing about that is we all seem surprised about that. Now, for us as Christians, we recognize a huge difference between the church and the world is that we know that we are sinners and we know we live in a fallen world and we know and believe from the word of God that man is inherently evil. We've been born with sin nature. But the world would say that the answer to our problems is just to look inside because inside we are actually good. So that's a huge difference in approach. So we look at the world and it's surprising that God's people are surprised that offenses happen. But we shouldn't be surprised. See, being offended, injured, hurt, burned, wronged, criticized, cheated, Abandoned, abused, humiliated, discouraged, neglected, or violated is part of the human experience. Some offenses are rooted in carelessness. Others are rooted in criminal behavior. Some offenses are individually based. Others are based on a corporation or a government or an agency. Some offenses are accidental. Others are purposeful. Some are committed against us by strangers. Other offenses are committed within the very family that we've been put in where protection and love should happen. We live in a culture now that elevates pride and self-righteousness, and we are and people are highly offensible. Offensible about gender, offensible about identity, offensible about race and politics and religion and sexuality, and everybody is offended nowadays. And for all of this, the word that we are not hearing is the word forgiveness. We're hearing a lot about justice. 
and a lot about punishment and a lot about consequences. Not that any of that is wrong. But the big word, and really the only word that leads to what people really want, and that's can't we all get along, the only word that really matters now is forgiveness. See, some matters in our lives, I think we would admit, are just small. They're just small things. It's something that happened at church, something that somebody said. They don't know what you come from. They don't know how you think. They make a comment. You take it a certain way and you're offended. You could overlook that. We learned that as kids, sticks and stones can break bones, but names can never hurt me. So there are things that you could certainly and simply overlook. Is that true or not true? But we tend to magnify things. But there are some things that are really serious offenses. They are really hurtful, painful situations. And I've listened to story upon story. Abusiveness, sexual abusiveness, family abusiveness, church abusiveness, neglect. And I mentioned the whole list earlier. These are real offenses and they can't be taken lightly. So what do we do with those things? You see, so many of God's people are living continually, whether it's recognized or not yet recognized, with unforgiveness. And that unforgiveness is ruining your life and the lives of those around you. If you look at your life and you identify things like bitterness, ongoing bitterness, ongoing anger, depression, isolation, it's quite possible, and many would say probable, that many of these things can be traced back in one way or another to unforgiveness. Now, we, as God's people, have a chance to, in our world that we live in, this word that's not being used, we have a chance to use it. I mean, imagine your next family gathering when everybody wants to talk about all the politics on TV and all the divisiveness, and you said, hey, do you think they could forgive? Now, you have to be ready for the backlash from that, right? Forgiveness? Are you kidding me? What are you, nuts? Are you out of your mind? See, that's a dirty word in our current culture. But for us as Christians, it's our lives. And if we aren't talking about forgiveness, and believe me, there are people in the world that are talking about forgiveness. I've watched some talks. I've listened to some stories. There are people in the world that have recognized what God has already said all along, that forgiveness is not an option. It's absolutely necessary for our emotional and relational health. I mean, where would our families be? Where would your relationship with your spouse be if there was not forgiveness? every day. What about with kids, parents? How many times do we have to forgive our children? And children, listen, children, youth that are in here, you have to forgive your parents. We were born to sinful parents ourselves. We've all been raised by sinful parents to one degree or another. And it's affected the way we think. It's affected the way we treat people. It's affected the way we parent. And we're all somewhere on this continuum. And the question that seems to come up is not just well, pastor, how can I forgive? A better question, and the question that this parable we're going to look at answers is why? Why should I forgive? If you can understand why you should forgive, then maybe you'll understand how to forgive. So if we're together on that, we'll dive back into Matthew 18. It starts out with Peter coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, how often? He wants to know a frequency. It's a frequency question. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Now, again, we're speaking of a relationship that exists. He says, my brother, there's someone I'm in a relationship with. 
It's a church relationship. It's a family relationship. It's a work relationship. I have a relationship with them and they have offended me. All of this, what Jesus says here and what Peter asks comes on the heels of Jesus talking about offenses within and among the disciples. They're going to offend each other. They all think that they're the greatest and that's offensive. And James and John want to sit at Jesus's right hand and the other guys hear about it. They're offended by that. And so there's offenses among Jesus's followers. Does that come as a surprise to you? Point number one is you can leave here today and know that it doesn't have to take you by surprise when someone else in church offends you. Can we agree on that basic thing? I mean, we live in a fallen world and we are broken people whom God is healing and we're all healing to some degree or another in this process of what the Bible calls sanctification. But we ain't there yet. And some are less there than others. But if we stop being a place where broken people can come and find love and healing and forgiveness, then we might as well shut the doors. If there's room for me here, there's room for you here. So Peter, not surprised that offenses can come, but the problem is somebody offends you. He gives the outline, which you would do well to study on your own, verses 15 through 19, just the outline for dealing with offenses. What do you do when you get offended? Well, there's a clear way to handle it. And the hope is, the desire is that it involves a reconciliation of the relationship. Most offenses are minor. The majority of things that people get offended about are small things that can be easily worked out if you go about it the right way. If you go and you talk to the person, instead of talking to five other people and gossiping, if you just talk to the person. Well, Peter, as he's hearing this whole process played out, he's thinking about it. And he says, okay, well, how many times do we have to go through that? I mean, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? And he's being generous. He's looking for the pat on the back. He says, up to seven times. Now, I don't know about you, but seven times, if someone hurts you seven times or wrongs you seven times, are you going to forgive them that many times? No way. I mean, hurt me once, wrong me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Isn't that what we say? So that puts the limit at two. So there's where we are in the body of Christ. We're typically going, okay, two, that's the limit. And for a lot of people, that's more than most will do. For a lot of people in the body of Christ, despite all that we read, despite all that we know, for many people, it's one. That's the limit. You didn't talk to me. You gossiped about me. You said something. Yes, forgiveness would not be needed if we were all perfect. Forgiveness is for those times when those people do those things to you. And for a lot of people, it's one time and I'm out of there. I hope that there's nobody here that has left the last church to come here with a bunch of baggage, which a lot of things that have been unreconciled from there. If you've come here, we want to have you here and to see you get healed here. But you know what? You may have some stuff from your past, from what that church did to you or what that pastor didn't do for you. They didn't visit me when I was in the hospital. They didn't do this thing for me. Like, we're going to offend, and you might have to deal with that. So Peter thinks, you might say one time, and I'm out. But Peter says, hey, seven times? He's thinking that's going to be pretty generous. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter's thinking Jesus is going to say, way to go, Peter. Seven times, man, you're awesome. You're a forgiving machine, Peter. And he says, actually, Jesus says, well, Peter, you know, you're just 
falling way short, like 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Now, do you think Jesus was being literal? Like you go, okay, today the count starts. And I'm thinking by 2020, vengeance ought to be mine. I mean, 490 times, but think of what a miserable way it would be to live counting people's faults. I don't think Jesus is literal. I think by the time that you get to 490 times of forgiveness, I mean, your journal is like, okay, 375. I'm thinking we're within a couple of months now. I mean, tomorrow ought to be good for at least five offenses. And you start to anticipate, oh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, no, no. I think what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you need to cultivate a habitual lifestyle of forgiveness. If this is not something I do once and it's over, it's something I do over and over. And there's a lot of ways we talk about this. As Christians, we say the words because we know we're supposed to. Well, I forgave, but I can't forget. Look, when you forgive, you don't lose your memory. Like the things that happen are real things. But you remember them with a different emotional response when you've forgiven. Well, I can forgive, but, but I won't forget or I can't forget. Well, I can't forgive because it's not fair. That means they'll have gotten away with it. We say the words, but our actions and our relationships and our lives and our emotions indicate that we've said it, but we haven't really done it. I've got two dogs at home, Maggie and Sandy Joe. Some of you know Sandy Joe is our little Chihuahuan. She thinks she's a great Dane, like most Chihuahuas. They think she thinks she's a great Dane. And at mealtime, I mean, if there's something good in the bowl and they go out to eat together, she will growl and snarl and show her teeth because she is just inherently selfish about food. She loves food more than she loves our other dog. And so she will snarl and get angry and the other dog will kind of cower away. And then they eat and five minutes later, we say to the dogs, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And there they are, both of them together going, yes, we would love to walk with you together. It's like, don't you remember what just happened at food? I mean, you were just about to kill each other and now you're ready to go for a walk together. What's up with that? I think animals do a better job sometimes with forgiveness and overlooking offenses than we do. Something happens to us and a week later, a month later, a year later, 10 years later, a lifetime later, we still remember it and we're still unwilling to be in the same room with that person. 70 times seven, that's 490 times. So that leads Jesus in to tell the parable. A parable is a story that tells us something we understand, something we don't understand. So Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant to address Peter's discussion and his question about how many times should I forgive? And it's a parable that discusses money, uses money as a vehicle and illustration to describe interpersonal offense or sin. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story, Peter, and the rest of the guys. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now to us, that means nothing. Because to us, a talent is something you're really good at. But to them, a talent is a unit of measurement. It's a weight, actually. So a denarius, this is where it is going to come up later on, a denarius is also a unit of weight. So when you got paid, you got paid according to the weight of whatever you were getting paid in. A talent of gold, actually we'll come to find out 75 pounds of gold. So next time you apply for a job and they ask you, well, how much do you think you'd like to make? 
said, I'd like to make a talent, please. 75 pounds of money a day, a day. That'd be good. So a denarius, three grams. That's one day's wage for a common laborer in ancient Rome. So in a year, your yearly salary would be about 300 denarii a year, average. A talent is 75 pounds compared to three grams or 6,000 denarii. So if you're quick with the math, 300 denarii a year, one talent is 6,000 denarii. That's one talent equals 20 years of salary. Whoa. And that's one talent. Now, how many years salary would 10,000 talents be? 200,000 years salary. Now I read this parable and I'm glad it's a parable because I'm going, if I'm the king, I'm going, okay, which of my servants extended this guy that much credit? It's like Fannie Mae going on here, Freddie Mac, whatever it is. Uh, Somebody gave this guy way too much credit. And it's as if he's lived frivolously and spent and spent and spent and never considered that someday he would be accountable for what he spent. So he's amassed this debt and the king comes home. He says, hey, let me settle up my accounts. Whoa, look at that one. There's a guy in my kingdom that owes me 200,000 years salary. I probably should talk to him. Get him in the office, would you? But now remember, this is a parable. So this is not about financial debt only. This is about sin and moral debt. And so the point that Jesus is making is that this servant has a debt that he is incapable of repaying. It's not a financial debt to God, to the king. It's a moral debt. From the day we were born, we began breaking the commandments of God. We began our loveless pursuit of self at the expense of others. We didn't always mean to do it. Sometimes sin is what we do that we shouldn't have done. Sometimes sin is not doing what we should have done. Sometimes sin is purposeful. Sometimes it's accidental. But imagine if you were given a sin credit card the day you were born and all your life you just live figuring you're never going to be accountable for the way you treat people, never going to be accountable for the way you think about people and relationships. And you just sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and sin all your life. And then God says, hey, let's talk about that. Do you realize the mass of the debt you've accumulated over the course of your lifetime? Well, what's the servant to do with this? I mean, he finds the servant, brings him in. But verse 25 is no surprise to us, but he was not able to pay. Of course, he's not able to pay. He has a debt that is impossible to pay. So his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children all that he had and that payment be made. There was no bankruptcy in those days. You didn't just declare bankruptcy. You had to pay your debt, which means you got sold into slavery or you went into debtor's prison until the money could be paid off. Didn't matter how much prison time this guy did or how many years he was a slave, he would have never paid off his debt. It's not possible. So knowing that and seeing the punishment that was awaiting him, that would include even his family, the servant therefore fell down, verse 26, before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Notice a couple things. He asked the master, who would dare ask the master to forgive the debt? I mean, that's ridiculous. Who would dare say, well, could you just uh, kind of write it off, you know? Uh, just cross it out somehow, cook the books. I don't know what you got to do. Could you just forgive it? But he doesn't even ask that. He says, could you give me time? So his sin and his debt has so diluted him that somehow he thinks that maybe with enough time he could pay it off. And he's just wrong. 
But aren't there people like that? People that are thinking that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. If I live long enough, I'll do enough good things to pay off all the bad things I've done. You won't. Because your rate of bad things is greater than your rate of good things. That's just the way it is. So he says, give me time. And he makes a determination. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Well, what's the master going to do? I mean, every one of Jesus' parables has a turning point, has a surprise. It's like Cracker Jacks. Remember Cracker Jacks? Even in the day of technology, kids still eat Cracker Jacks with a toy in it. I digress. Okay. But every one of Jesus' parables is like a box of Cracker Jacks. You find as you start going through it that there's this cool surprise there in the box. And verse 27 is one of the surprises. Then the master of that servant was moved with anger and couldn't believe that he would ask for such a thing. No, no, no. Is that what your Bible says? No. The master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. God is telling you something about himself. The word for compassion, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It comes from a word that means spleen. How about that one? So you can write in your Bible, next to compassion, you can write spleen. And then you'll look back on that and go, why did I write that? Or you could write intestines. Yeah, no, literally, that's what it means. Because they thought that the deepest emotions in the human life came from the intestines. So when Jesus says the master was moved in his intestines, I know we go, eh, that's kind of gross. That's kind of strange. But our version of it would be he was moved in his heart. He saw the desperation of this guy. He understood his insurmountable debts. Didn't move him to anger and vengeance and justice. It moved him to compassion. He felt, listen, church, God feels. And the proof is right here. God feels for people. Many of you have been brought up in a church where all God felt was anger. But God feels compassion. He doesn't say, move with compassion and gave him more time. What does he say? Move with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. To forgive is a word that means to put away from. He separated the man from what he was owed by the man. That's really important. He separated the man from what the man owed him. The man's debt was put away from the man. Now, I would like it if the parable ended right here. And the man, the servant, was overjoyed. He went away and rejoiced and told all the other servants what a great king they had. And he lived happily ever after. Wouldn't that be great? That's the American version of the story. But Jesus hasn't reached his point yet. Remember, what we're getting to is not just how do I forgive, but why? should I forgive? And so verse 28 tells us that servant went out, doesn't say anything about joy, doesn't say anything about gratitude, but it says he went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. I mean, what a difference between how he was treated and how he's treating other people. Now, just for argument's sake, maybe you've heard this parable before, And you've heard it said, well, the first guy, his debt was about $10 million. And the second guy, he owed the first guy only about 10 bucks. That's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And it minimizes, listen, it's important. Because what that does, saying that about this parable, minimizes the debt that was owed to the servant. A hundred denarii, based on what I told you already, 300 denarii in a year, 
that makes 100 denarii into what? Three months salary. That's a whole quarter of your tax life. Now, how many of you would be glad to overlook a debt of three months salary? No. So what Jesus is saying and what we want to know is this is a significant debt because some of you, you've been wronged in ways that are insignificant. That's a $10 offense. That's a five cent offense. You heard someone talking about you behind your back. That's a dollar offense. We all do that. Ecclesiastes says that. I'm not making that up. Ecclesiastes says, when you hear someone talking about you behind your back, forget about it because you know you've done the same thing. So that's a five cent, $10 offense, whatever. But for some of you, it's been massive amounts of trauma and abuse. It's been neglect. It's been pain. It's been divorce. It's been alcohol. I've watched stories of all over the board of what people have gone through on planet earth. And it's horrible. It's wrong. Listen, one side that's wrong is vengeance. But the other side is wrong is denial. Denial will never get you there. You can stuff it down. You can pretend it didn't happen. You can try to avoid thinking about it. You can minimize it. None of that stuff will get you there. That's not right. That's an incorrect and unbiblical way of looking at offenses. Actually, this guy knows that the offense is, is pretty significant. Three months salary. Notice another thing that we find out from this is that you can only collect the debt from the person who owes you and you have to know exactly what they owe you. See, there's a lot of people trying to collect debts that really occurred with an offense between two other people. It didn't even involve you in the first place. Person A offends person B and it ends up on Facebook and it ends up in the gossip circles and now everybody's offended. Well, what right do you have to be offended? They didn't offend you. Doesn't have anything to do with you. But maybe it's a child. Maybe the teacher in school treated your child badly or unfairly. And now you're offended. You're going to give that teacher a piece of your mind. Wait a second. Don't be so fast to give away that piece of your mind. But first you have to figure out why are you offended? What specifically does the teacher owe you and why? Do you see what I'm saying? It's a lot of people living in unforgiveness for something that wasn't even done to them. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact on you, but you have to work the process of figuring out what it is that they owe you and why. What it is that offended you, how it hurt you, and why it matters to you. And then once you get there, then you'll know what you have to forgive. But until then, it's just this kind of general, vague thing that'll never get you to forgiveness. But this servant grabs the guy, knows what he owes him, knows the right guy, And he lays hands on him and takes him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe. I'm thinking that this guy heard the words of his king. I forgive you your debt, but I don't think he got it. Do you? I don't think he got it. I think if he got it, he wouldn't be trying to collect the debt that he was owed. That's the point of the parable. If he understood the forgiveness that he'd been given, he would be forgiving toward others. Listen, forgiven people forgive others. Unforgiven people are unforgiving toward others. So he jacks this guy up, shakes him down, pay me what you owe. By the way, this applies to a lot of the things we experience on the news and whatnot. People are outraged about stuff that they don't even know what's going on. But also we're outraged about it. You don't even know the story. You don't even know what happened. All you know is what the news told you. Before you get outraged, find out what happened and figure out what it means to you. So, The fellow servant, the guy who's getting shaken down, verse 29 says, so his fellow servant fell down at his feet 
and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now for the servant who owed the great debt, this should bring back a memory, shouldn't it? This should spark something going, hey, wait a second. That was me. I said those very words to my king and the king in his compassion forgave me. Wow, maybe I should forgive this guy. That's the expected response. He says the same exact thing in verse 29 that the first servant said to his king. Now, surprise number two is in verse 30. And he would not. Doesn't say he could not. He could. Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't mean it's cheap. Look, forgiveness is not cheap, but it'll save you a lot of money in the long run. It'll save you a lot of heartache. He would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. I wanted mercy for me, but this guy needs justice. Do you see the hypocrisy? When I read about Yale law students, 700 of them walking out of class to protest, I thought, what if we looked into all of your lives, you 700 law students? What would we find? Would we find that you've never offended anybody in your life? Look, you're in college. I know better. You see, all of the talk we're having is about justice. We need justice. And I'm not saying justice doesn't have a place. Justice helps settle a person's debt with society. But it does not fix what they did to you. You can watch them go away to prison for life or the death penalty. And none of that fixes or changes what was done to you. You see, justice doesn't change the past. And justice doesn't heal the relationship. But justice and vengeance do feel really good. Can we be honest about that? Justice and vengeance light up that part of our brain that gets lit up when we eat ice cream. Oh, it tastes so good. But here is the subtle, damaging, insidious part of vengeance. Vengeance, like any other addiction, is based on anticipation, a feeling about what you're going to get. And the desire and the dopamine, neuroscientists would say, that's released, the chemical of the feel-good chemical that's released when you anticipate something good that's going to happen. Same thing for the alcoholic that anticipates the drink or the smoker that anticipates the cigarette. You just can't wait to get it. It involves sexual satisfaction is the same kind of thing. What I'm going to get from this is going to fulfill me. But the problem is, because it's based on anticipation, once you get it, what do you find happens? It leaves you empty. Vengeance does not satisfy. It does not fill you. It does not change anything. It just leaves you empty and it does not resolve. Lots of stories in my life, just like in your life of forgiveness, One particularly that was educational to me in my work career, working with horses. I had a guy that amassed about a thousand dollar debt with me, work I'd done. I'd extended him credit. He promised he'd pay me. He said, just give me time. I'll get you the money. I mean, it's right out of this parable. Give me some time. I'll get you the money. The check's in the mail. You know the story, right? So I gave him time, gave him time. And then he stopped answering phone calls. I started writing him letters. He was avoiding me. I stopped working for him. Duh but I'm going, what do I do next? Do I try to take him to small claims court? I mean, it's a $1,000 roughly. Like that's a chunk of money. I could use that money. This thing was consuming my life. Worried about how am I going to get the money? When am I, I got to write him another letter. Got to send him another bill. And I just said, you know, this is ridiculous. And I remember God 
just saying to me, Steve, do you not think that I can take care of you? Are you so unforgiving because you think that somehow I can't meet your needs? And in that moment, I wrote him one final letter and one final bill. And on that bill, I put the amount that was owed because it was really owed. Whatever that person owes you, they really owe you. But on that bill, I wrote what Jesus Christ wrote over my life, paid in full. And a letter letting him know that his debt was forgiven and I was no longer going to make any attempt to collect on it now or ever in the future. And I put it in the mail, sent it to him. And about three months later, don't you know, I ran into him in the grocery store in Charlottesville. And he began to walk the other way and I began to chase him. And he began to run faster and I began to run faster. Now we're sprinting through the deli at the grocery store and I've got Jacob with me. I'm like, come on, Jacob, come on, hurry up, hurry up. And he thinks I'm going to shake him up. He thinks I'm going to rough him up. And instead, when I finally caught him, the first thing he said to me, turned to me and he said, I'm going to pay you. I promise I'm going to get it to you. And I said, stop it. Don't say that. I sent you a letter. Your debt is forgiven. I just wanted to say hi. And I said hi to him, asked him how his life was, asked him how his horses were. And then we went our way. And it felt great until next week when the mortgage bill came. And I said, oh, Lord, I really need that money. And the Lord said, Steve, remember, you forgave that debt. It no longer exists. It's off the books. If you forgive it, you cannot make a decision at a later time to reclaim it again. And God reminded me. And see, over time, the only time I remember that story is every time I have to preach on forgiveness. Because you see, when you don't forgive, you're always remembering. But when you forgive, you can begin to forget because that memory is no longer at the forefront of your mind. It begins to fade. Yes, you always remember it happened. In some ways, it made you who you are. In some ways, it formed your life. But you stop remembering it all the time and it no longer accompanies the emotions that you used to feel when you think about it. So when his fellow servants saw, verse 31, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. So other people are watching. Other people recognized it was painful and it was wrong to do. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. I mean, you begged me and I forgave you. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Shouldn't you have felt for him the way I felt for you? Look, you know the saying, hurt people hurt people. If someone has hurt you, damaged you, the likelihood is that somehow they were hurt growing up. That doesn't make it easy, but that means maybe we can have compassion on someone who's hurt us. Maybe we can try to understand why they say those nasty things. What's defunct or twisted in them that they could treat another human being that way. But I don't have to live with that anymore. I don't have to go through that ongoing torture. That's what he's going to say. His master had called him, said, you wicked servant, don't you want to hear well done, good and faithful servant? That's what I want to hear. But he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you. This is the expectation. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes, you should have had compassion the way I had compassion on you. And his master 
was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. That's what happens. The guy that owed this first guy, who's making out worse than this? The guy who tried to shake him down for the debt is now in prison paying all that was due him and he's got torturers there now too. It seems worse. Now, I don't know what these torturers are. These are interrogators, but that doesn't sound good to me. But you know, and I know, and we know the torture of unforgiveness, the torture of a life of bitterness and grief and pain and addiction, depression, discouragement, shame. We know that, the torture when I hold on to all those things. So verse 35, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. You see, God lets us set the standard. Isn't that crazy? He says, I'll tell you what, I'll judge you based on the standard you set. If you're merciful, then I'll give you mercy. If you're forgiving, then I'll be forgiving. But if you are not forgiving, then you will not be forgiven. The way you measure out to others is the way Jesus says it's measured back to you. That ought to really get my attention. That ought to really build a community of forgiveness and love and grace. Why? Because I need a lot of it. And because I need a lot of it from you, I need to be that to you. Does that make sense? Look, forgiveness for us is not an option. It's not something we can play fast and loose with. I look at the TV and I look at the world we live in and I say, we are failing miserably at relationships. And what you see happening in our government is an absolute failure of humanity. What you see happening sometimes in the church is a failure of relationship because we don't use the right words. We have to interject this word into the dialogue. We have to interject the word into the rhetoric and expect that we're going to get shamed for even saying such a thing. And we have to not just say it, we got to do something harder than that. What do we have to do, church? We have to live it. We have to forgive. 